Hi, friends. A quick and heartfelt plea, the best kind, uh, before we get going. If you enjoy the show, this one, uh, maybe you use it in your classes, uh, or maybe you want to support accessible anthropology and archaeology outreach, please do consider subscribing to our premium feed. The cumbersome link uh, is in our show notes, or if you want to get a pen and then hit back 15 seconds a few times to catch all this it is <laughs> https colon slash slash the hyphen dirt hyphen podcast dot captivate dot f m slash support so that gets you all of our back catalog of bonus material uh most of it the vast majority of it never released ever on the main feed in any form uh for just five dollars per month um after a one week free trial. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's it. And we we think that's a pretty sweet deal. It's the sweetest deal we could muster. Uh, and there also will be new content coming to the feed as often as we can swing it. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> that was an, uh, I was trying to sound like, no, I tried to sound bitten. excited. And that's how it came out. <laughs> well, it truly is a, a sincere plea because we've had so much wonderful support over the past five years of The Dirt, and it's let us do so much. We've been able to fund some travel for students to present their work at conferences through the Pass the Mic grant, and we've been able to travel to conferences ourselves to do outreach of our own and to promote the AAA podcast library as a resource for anthropologists everywhere. And... We've got our incredible producer and social media wizard, Jenna, on our payroll. And boy, oh boy, does she deserve a raise. If the IRS is listening, she is not on our payroll. Amber and I don't make money ourselves from the show, but we do use the money from our subscribers to do all the things listed above and to pay the bills for the services we use to host the show and the website. So, hey, if you want to help keep the lights on at Dirt HQ, head on over to the link in the show notes or hit back... 30 seconds a lot and uh, write that link on down and subscribe. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And on with the show. Here comes the theme song. Okay. And welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I am Amber. That is so true. And this week, we're we're doing... Invalid. Yeah, this week, we're having a tough time. Uh, We're doing a bit of a light lift episode, because both of our actual day jobs are a little bit bananas right now, or a lot of bit bananas. But it should still be interesting stuff, because Amber... I will be presenting you and the listeners with new olds. Well, that's no way to talk about people. New olds. That sounds like, oh, there we go. Okay. That sounds a lot like our former Patreon content category, Old News, where we do a roundup of recent developments and discoveries in archaeology, uh, all of which is now available on our premium feed. For just $5 a month. Uh, no, After this is a one-week free trial. Yes. This is very different. Anyway, Amber, I've got five news stories here that I would like to share with you. Some are directly related to recent episodes, and some I chose because I thought you and our listeners would enjoy them. I also chose these because they sort of span a variety of times and places, as well as five individual stories can. Uh, So I'll present the stories, and we can discuss, poke around further, head off on side quests, whatever. Um, So... First up, directly related to our recent human evolution episode, and a reminder that part two about the genus Homo and tools, and especially fire, will be available on the premium feed soon, which you can subscribe to for just $5 a month Okay. after a seven-day retrial. <laughs> hey, comedy comes in threes. Um, well, well, that was like the fourth time. So. Oh, no. <laughs> so, yes, the premium feed's up to date, so is the website. I did it. Thank Hooray. you. <laughs> Excellent production meeting. Hey. So this uh, story that I'm going to talk about, uh, I read, I browsed the actual 
article, uh, but this comes from a report from Science Daily. How did humans learn to walk? New evolutionary study offers an earful. Oh. Uh, So this is based on six million year old fossils. So, sorry. The fossil skulls are (laughs) six million years old. There are not six of them. Okay. (laughs) It's more than that. Um, There are more than that? There were more than six, I believe. Oh, wow. Yes. I mean, Uh, that's like... That's huge, huge numbers for yeah for dealing with like extinct. for millions of years ago, definitely. Yeah, right. Like, mm-hmm. am I totally off base there? That well, like I guess a lot I think the, it depends on the species. Well, like a lot, some of the folks that we talked about in our evolution. Oh it's yeah, like we have just like, like a two part crumbs. of yeah, yeah, yeah. We've got little bone crumbs. Yeah, these are. We've I believe the sample size over here. is yeah, baker's dozen. Um, yeah. Okay. So this, these skulls are from an extinct ape species, Lufangpithecus. And so for context, the human and the chimp lineages split, like started evolving in different directions around 6 million years ago. So that's not saying that this species, Lufangpithecus, is a last common ancestor of any kind. That's not what I'm saying. It's just that it's really handy that that's a species that was around as these two lines were diverging. But is, so, is it thought to be a common ancestor? Uh, like, what's just doing a, the lifting there in that sentence? I, a last or common? Neither. Ancestor? I, I think I think the best I can say <laughs> is that uh, it's a relative of both us and chimps. Because I don't know exactly where in the split it goes. Like if it is farther along the chimp line or if it's farther back and is an ancestor of both of our lineages. Cause it's a species well, that was around for a while, oh. but that, you know, okay. but is now extinct. So the reason this was, I thought this was really cool is that usually in looking at anatomical evidence for when we evolved to walk, which is something that is studied, you know, for lots and lots of fossil species of, of hominins and ancestors, it has to do with the shapes of leg, foot, and hip bones, as you might expect. So this is a cool approach because it's drawing on a totally different piece of anatomy. So researchers from NYU and the Institute of Vertebrate Paleontology and Paleoanthropology of the Chinese Academy of Sciences took CT scans of these fossil skulls, focusing on the inner ear, which is the part that has bones. So let's talk about ear anatomy real quick. Because <laughs> you may be, listener, you may be poking your ear and thinking, I got bones in there? You do. So well, Your finger is in the outer ear. Yeah, don't put it in the inner ear. And then it's in your skull. <laughs> yeah, um, and the part, the, part the part that you hear from with, part you hear with, uh, that's the middle ear, yeah? The part you hear with is all of it. Um, it like it all contributes, but the, the part eardrum that, is in the middle. It's part. in the middle. Yes. Yeah, that's uh-huh. why like an ear infection is otitis media, like where it's your middle media, ear. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yep. Okay. Great. I'm yeah. Just, so we You know how I love to figure out where we are geographically. Yes. Well, geographically, we are beyond the eardrum, beyond the tympanum. Oh, so in inside, inside the bones. Okay. So, um, your Semicircular canals are located in the skull between our brains and the external ear. So uh, if you are looking at an anatomy textbook, um, Mm -hmm. you'll see this chunk of bone called the auditory meatus. Mm -hmm. Uh, Looks like meatus, rhymes with Mm -hmm. huitus, but no, it's it's meatus. Uh, In humans, and and it's sometimes called a bulla in other animals. Um, And so it's where, in humans, it's where the hammer, anvil, and stirrup live, the two, uh, Mm -hmm. the the, the two, the three tiny, tiny bones of our inner ear. And so the size and the shape of the semicircular canals can correlate with how mammals, including apes and humans, move around in their environment. And so the semicircular canal of a quadruped who spends all their time on four legs and, and balances that way, like their center of gravity is oriented differently from someone who walks on two legs. Now, is this are the semicircular canals where my little where my little uh, ear ear rocks were when they fell out of when I got? Is that no. what is that what I was? You know what I'm talking about? The little otoliths that affect balance and like when I got I got vertigo two two Saudi trips ago and I had to do that like thing where I like 
rolled my head around 45 degrees at a time so they would settle oh, back into that. place. Um, Is that in the a, semicircular oh, canal? That's a great question. The YouTube I, video I watched didn't cover that. <laughs> I don't know the answer to that. I didn't okay. prepare I, for I, this. I wasn't too interested at the time, but as I was really... Yeah, I, I mean, having one. <laughs> yeah, that does work. And but I, is that? Uh, I I think that's what you're regulating is is like you're kind of resetting your inner yeah. ear, which deals I, with my, balance. My little my little ear rock fell out of place, and I had to get it to float back down into the right place. That sounds sciencey. Like, that's yeah. Well, it, it had to like sink. It, so it got out. out of because there's like fluid, and it got yes. out of it got out of sync, and so it made me go all wibbly. And so I had to yeah the information roll that my was head around getting to your brain about your balance and stuff was incorrect yeah. because of the composition of stuff in your inner ear. That's as, yeah, I mean, that's you wibbly. As, yeah, you wibbly. Okay, great. So, <laughs> so if the size and shape of the semicircular canals correlates with how we move around, then by looking at the semicircular canals and comparing it to four legs versus two legs, you I'm can, convinced. huh? I'm convinced. I'll be like, oh, this one, real dizzy. This was a dizzy one. <laughs> no, the you dizzy can, little guy. You can, <laughs> you can get a sense of what that animal spent more of its time doing. Yeah. Um, and so Terry Harrison, a New York University anthropologist and one of the paper's co-authors, says, quote, and there's a lot of jargon in what Terry says. So let me know if oh, flag Terry. anything that, that uh, you want me to break down and I'll try or I might just break down. Okay, uh, the first the first line is is making me feel like you don't have a lot of faith in me. Later, later the lines. First line. Later lines are are <laughs> where I'm concerned. Uh, so, quote says Terry, our study points to a three step evolution of human bipedalism. First, <laughs> nailed. Yeah, so far, ding. I got it. Great. First, the earliest apes moved in the trees in a style that was most similar to aspects of the way that gibbons in Asia do today. So. Sort of upright, but not really, because they're mostly they're using their arms primarily, and then they're just kind of like when they're staying still, they're on their their little hind legs. But you ever see a gibbon walking on the ground? It's real goofy. They like they kind of do a sideways hop step, kind of. Th- they don't. It's very they line dance. They kind of yeah. They con- kind of like conga down down on the on the ground. Um, <laughs> Second, continue. Do they the do quote. like a clap every fourth step? Yeah, and a little they doff their little grapevine, grapevine, grapevine clap. <laughs> doff your little cowboy hat. Um, second, ma'am, the last <laughs> common ancestor of apes and humans was similar in its locomotor repertoire to Lufang Pithecus, uh-huh. using mm-hmm. a combination of climbing and clambering. Been there. Yeah, forelimb suspension. Arboreal bipedalism and terrestrial quadrupedalism. What's now, a forelimb suspension other than like something to like <laughs> that you do with the one pound weights? <laughs> I mean, kind of, but yeah, it's, uh, it is supporting your weight with your arms. Oh, okay. I don't know why I sound so disappointed, but you know, it's like, how, um, is that, is that a way that gorilla move? Uh, if, like where they no, walk no, no, and like, they're no, like up knuckle? in trees. No, okay, suspension what? is hanging like specifically it like terminologically oh. it refers to like arboreal like in trees so that so just like hang and reach yeah not hang not like swinging that's not swinging not that's brachiation. That brachiating yeah okay. yeah so not swinging but as you are walking with your hind feet along a branch you're holding on to other okay. things like things above you okay. to keep your balance okay okay yeah. okay so monkeys not apes have tails and that's a big part I, of that their what's the, the thing of, have tails they have yes. tails yeah but gibbons do not have tails correct and so because they aren't monkeys yeah and so well, they're they're because they they're apes i mean they're lesser apes but but they're, they're it's fine they're valid valid <laughs> apes uh yeah so they don't have that tail for balance so they okay. that's they do that so to to break down the last part of what what I just said, so forelimb suspension is using your arms for balance. And then arboreal bipedalism is a common, it's, it's that it's like using walking on branches. But as you're doing that, you are also using your arms, you, the gibbon, you, the 
ancient ape species are using your arms to to grab and and hold on for balance. And then terrestrial quadrupedalism, when they are on the ground, they, as you were saying, they do what gorillas do. They they support. They don't stride back foot to back foot. You know, they they use their their hands as well. Um, so so gorillas are quadrupeds. They are primarily quadrupeds. Yeah. They can okay. stand and, and walk on hind legs, but it's much more, based on their anatomy, it's actually much more efficient for them to I guess to use their arms. And then a lot of times they're in the trees, so that, yeah. just different different ball game. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they are, uh, ooh, am I going to get this right? They're, they're knuckle walkers. They're, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So I guess that's why I, I it sort of, it didn't strike me as quadrupedalism because it. Well, because they're not peds, right? Because because they don't yeah. they don't have little paws. But but but, but no, it's the same thing. Isn't just, it? it's they, just they because... are on four limbs. Does that help? Limbs. Yeah. yeah, it does. It does help. Thank you. Yeah. So you got your you got your gorillas and orangutans who are mm-hmm. uh, when orangutans use their knuckles. Uh, I think they they put their fists fully on the ground. Knuckle down. Knuckle down, and then gorillas and and chimps. I think primarily use okay the so the middle joint of the fingers to support them so orangutans throw like good punches and then, <laughs> safe punches um, yeah and gorillas yeah, safe, and then gorillas, and gorillas uh, like, would still probably break, punch break your face hands. right off yeah yeah um, <laughs> but but they'd break a finger yeah in the but, process and, and baboons okay. would just slap you because baboons <gasps> walk they 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 walk palm down slappers? yeah oh, yeah they they walk palm down. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let me finish Terry's quote. Uh, okay. Yeah. Cooler global temperatures associated with the buildup of glacial ice sheets in the Northern Hemisphere approximately 3.2 million years ago correspond with an uptick in the rate of change of the inner ear bones. I subbed in inner ear bones because, you know. Okay. And this may signal a rapid increase in the pace of ape and human locomotor evolution. Which doesn't mean they started moving more quickly. No, and it doesn't mean that they <laughs> hopped on trains either. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. So what was your question? My question is um, about forelimb suspension, because I haven't let it go yet, as it were. Uh, um, so given what we're talking my, about. The question that I wrote down for myself here is feature or bug? Like, oh. are they... Are, are, are we looking at, if we think about us as a single, like, instant in sort of deep time of hey, evolutionary process? Yes, great. Like, are we, <laughs> are we looking, um, are what gibbons do now and what they have done the whole time they've been gibboning, um, are they, would, would they perhaps be seen as that sort of, like, mid-step that feels like... <sighs> Like they're they're doing what they do, how they do it, and it works mm-hmm. for them. But is this what I is this what what we see as sort of like this? Because again, like falling into the trap of thinking about linear evolution, or at least like evolution towards something. Yeah. So if we're thinking about evolution from the point of quadrupedalism to bipedalism, like mm-hmm. this is sort of a midpoint, even if it's not meant, even if it is. It's at not point. like a so. But is that what we're looking like? Is that not what this really. is? No. Okay. No. So and so like are because it doesn't make a lot of sense to me what they do. <laughs> and that so, they're like because it seems like you kind of you're very limited by things that are not too limbs that are not too close together or too far no, apart. No. 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 Okay. So, so, like, so here's through. the thing. Here's the thing that you're missing okay. is that is that this uh, oh. forelimb suspension and this like w- arboreal walking. Yeah. is not their primary mode of locomotion. They it's just something swing. they're capable of. They can do it. So like they they brachiate, they swing. They are incredible like just acrobats basically. Um and they have this incredible swingers? like s- strength and precision in how they swing. But if they're just standing still or they just kind of want to move over a little bit, they okay. can they can, they can step scooch. with their yeah, they can step with their feet, but that's not how they that's not their preference in how they get around. Okay. Um, and listeners and Amber, not right now, but I encourage you to to go look up some videos of, of gibbons, like in zoos or, or whatever, um, brachiating, because it's really something. It's so cool. 
like just how they move mm-hmm. and like the speed and and agility that they have it's something that okay um so yeah to answer your question um it's not a midpoint because the point at which apes and monkeys diverged mm-hmm. is way millions of years no 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 i'm not like i'm not saying this. they're like a missing link or something but just like is this sort of form of movement something that like if we were to if if one were to look at like whatever is you know two million years hence of <laughs> of gibbons like would is this something that sort of contributes to the ability to be bipedal yeah yeah, yeah. a bit like that's, I think. that's kind of what i'm at like that's but something I, that but like, i think the thing that that really I, determines what gibbons do is their environment like if gibbons as a population were sudden not suddenly but like over a relatively short period of time, um, if they lost the habitat that necessitates Say with the, uh, with the buildup of glacial ice sheets, <laughs> yeah, sure. If, if well, that I'm just were saying, to, like, yeah, 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 like is it, or if suddenly they were just sort of they had a lot fewer uh, arboreal habitats, right? That if they were forced for some reason to spend a lot more time on the ground, it is possible mm-hmm. that you'd start seeing adaptations that had more to do with walking on the ground but so this is once again me like clinging to like a an like an unproductive model of thinking about evolution like that is that like like i mean that sounds because i don't think i would put it well no no like i know i'm saying like it's like i this is this is still like yeah it's hard to let go stuck on like a linear model yeah and And not like can't really treat it as a point from which we can extrapolate extrapolate because you don't know because to some extent and this is where like computer to like it's random and it's in response to pressures yeah and so and i don't know what either of those things are well to some extent you can like you know you can't really know but to some extent and and this is where like modeling and machine learning have have been useful for studies of evolution don't squinch up your face at me i'm just telling you (laughs) no that's like to some extent, you can say, well, maybe in these conditions, you'd see populations adapting this way. But it is all completely, who knows, you know? Yeah. Thank all you. Right. Yeah. So I thought, you know, that was relevant to our yeah. uh, hominin talk. Um, but now something totally different. Next story, also um, reported on by Science Daily. Prehistoric person with Turner syndrome identified from ancient DNA. So I imagine your first question would be, what is Turner syndrome? Um, It's also referred to as congenital ovarian hypoplasia syndrome. Uh, It's named Turner syndrome because it was first like officially described and published by a physician named Henri Turner in 1938. So it's, it's one of those uh, sex chromosome abnormalities like Klinefelter syndrome, uh, where Mm -hmm. you get different numbers of X's and Y chromosomes then is the norm for whatever biological sex. Yeah. You are, it's uh, one yeah. of the things that, that could put an individual in the category of intersex. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Depend, yeah. Depending on what, whether there's something sort of like externally visible that like. Sure. Yeah. One off, yeah. Or if they do, if they have, uh, if they do uh, any kind of genetic yeah. testing or anything that would, that would show that. Yeah, exactly. Right. Okay. Uh, it's the most common sex chromosomal abnormality found in those who are assigned female at birth, and it results when one of the X chromosomes is missing, either partially or completely. Partially? Mm-hmm. So, well, I, I will explain that in a minute. So, yep, put a pin in that. Um, a subset of this condition is called mosaic Turner syndrome, which I wanted to kind of parse that out because that is specifically what has been identified in this prehistoric individual. Okay. Okay, so partially or completely. Um, The condition occurs due to a random event during the cell division stage in the early fetal development of the individual. So egg meets sperm, right? And then those cells start dividing and multiplying, right? So they, in order to produce more of the fetus, the cells replicate, meaning Mm -hmm. that they double their their uh genetic material and Mm -hmm. then they pinch apart into two separate cells but sometimes when they pinch apart into those two separate cells 
And this can happen in general with chromosomes, but what we're talking about here happens specifically with the sex chromosomes. Um, When those cells pinch apart, the chromosomes may not separate correctly. Either they don't separate at all and a pair goes with one cell and the other cell just kind of has an empty space where that other chromosome should be, or unsuccessful (laughs) separation and and part of the chromosome comes away, but the other half is still... other bit is still stuck to to so its, its pair. So it's like a 60-40. Yeah, there's like some sort of I don't, split. Yeah, oh, but but it's like not a half the material goes. It's, yeah, it's not the correct. So this is still happening in the same individual, in a single individual. So it depends on which cells replicate most. If it's if it's the ones with you know too many chromosomes, not enough chromosomes. So as a result, um, some of a person's cells will have the usual two sex chromosomes, whichever defines their, their assigned sex, right? Uh, while other cells contain only one copy of the X chromosome. So this is for this particular condition, um, because it is congenital, because it's happening just like in the person, it's often not hereditary, although in very, very rare cases it can be. Okay. And so that means, so the first time I read that, okay, it's not going to happen to me now, right? Nope. You're okay. done being it, a fetus. So it, okay. 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 Well, that this was is happening just, that's in the like difference the between very, congenital very first, and hereditary. Yeah. This yes, is this like is, when you're first. Yeah. As you, yeah, as you are first like forming are, into what will become an infant that gets, that gets born and turns into Amber, right? You are, your cells are, I mean, uh, but which is okay, not to say so, that your cells still aren't dividing and multiplying now, but not your gametes, not your sex cells. Those are, you got those. Like if you were to scratch yourself and the scratch heals, that's because your skin cells are are yeah. are multiplying. So and, and okay, so if growing. you okay, so let me. I let don't me, understand how this works. Let's expand like this how, out a little like, bit. Can the can the fetus? But wouldn't the fetus include some cells that are it's a less mix. and some cells mm-hmm. that are more? Yep. And then does it just it just depends on which one becomes a a reproductive well, organ? So as we'll like, get what to, does that mean? As we'll get to, there are sort of other physical. Um, repercussions of this okay but um and, let's back up and and then other question is this is mosaic turner syndrome what that uh we maybe we talked about on the show maybe we talked about it in our lives but there was a woman who was not the biological mother of oh, her child yeah. no that's chimerism like a, okay yeah, yeah. okay but like okay that was just yeah. okay where so that's just something some different where she like didn't. absorbed a twin or something or or oh my god okay we don't There's need so many. <laughs> i'm back to when i don't I was remember in, that when story I was well enough to... and i was just like i'm no, never no, no, having no, no. children it seems nope. like too much of a gamble okay how did any of us get this far <laughs> so please take me back to that moment okay well <laughs> i wish i remembered more about that case like the specifics but i do remember I think that we it, talked about we it were talking show, about so. chimerism we did okay great, um, great so if you can find where we talked about chimerism I think it was in our DNA episode, actually, maybe. Probably. That seems, would be a good place for it. That seems relevant. Um, <laughs> so speaking of DNA, so your chromosomes are yes. just tightly wound coils of DNA. Your Man, chromosomes just like are the rest made of me. DNA. Yep. And your DNA tells your cells which proteins to make, which okay. means that it tells your cells what kind of cells to build. Right? Yes. So the, the, the proteins that are fit together according to your DNA instructions, tells your liver cells to be liver cells, tells your heart cells to be heart cells, et cetera, et cetera, right? It it portions out all of the parts of you and puts it together. Uh, And as you grow, it sort of, you know, develops into whatever traits your DNA says you have. But Mm -hmm. if your chromosomes have been, have been damaged or like, I guess, affected by a partial split or an incomplete split, um, those directions for some of your cells are going to be faulty, or at least they're not going to produce the proteins that, that in the exact correct way that they need to. And this is like an embryonic thing. Yeah. Not like a, I'd use antioxidants to avoid that kind of thing. Yes. Right, uh, like it's yeah. I'm talking about like uh-huh. cell damage. Like it's oh it's yeah, like no, this, no, no, no. It's like it's not other, damage. Like if it's it, it's um like it's yes, in the I assembly. Guess that was really, yeah, 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 but it isn't. 
These people aren't broke. Sorry. No, no, no. I didn't I didn't mean to imply that. Oh no, no, no. But I'm talking about like cells can be damaged like by radiation or but but in this case it is not it's not something happening to the cells. It's as the cells are are building, the the building instructions are are not being interpreted correctly. Like it's, it's a really like clunky way of saying that, right? The the proteins aren't being built the way that the original DNA blueprint said that they should be. Yeah. You put the, you slide the little paperboard thing at the back of the Billy bookcase in backwards. It still works. Oh yeah. I've done that every time I've built an Ikea. Every time. Yeah. It's like, (laughs) ah, but it it, like still works. It isn't something that like, cause if it were, if the, no, like if this were like a, I know I'm not like apologizing more. Uh, Like if it were something that were like something that meant that the, that the organism doesn't work anymore then it, it can wouldn't mean be that viable. pieces of the organism are different in a way that could be harmful to the individual. Okay. It, yeah. If it happens early enough, if, if this happens early enough and affects the cells in a way that makes them just simply not work the way that their DNA originally said they should. Yes. Sometimes that individual just won't survive. Well, it, is, it doesn't become an individual. Just yeah, it does. Like, yeah, it, it doesn't. Like yes, a, it's not viable. Yeah. yeah, but in this case, usually it the the individual like is born and and grows up yeah. and just can have some health issues. So, speaking of that, the condition can have lots of different effects uh, depending on the rest of a person's genetic makeup. So, like, there's so much other information in DNA. Like this is only a tiny portion of it because if yeah. it's if it's the sex chromosomes that are affected, it affects the sex characteristics. That is what the DNA inside the sex chromosomes does. So it has to do yeah. with things that happen to you after puberty, secondary mm-hmm. sex characteristics, or you know the ability to to get pregnant. Um, there can also be other physical and cognitive differences. Again, because there are ride-alongs, right? So it's in the case of uh, genetic information in our chromosomes, like sometimes a gene affects a single trait and sometimes for reasons we may or may not understand, a gene also affects some other traits. And so you see these kind of, the word mosaic comes up, like these mosaic effects okay, yeah. of of sort of knock-on effects of not yeah. having, <clears throat> of not having uh, those chromosomes separated uh the way that that they were meant to. So here's the news story. Researchers at the Francis Crick Institute, working with the University of Oxford, University of York, and Oxford Archaeology, have developed a new technique to measure the number of chromosomes in ancient genomes more precisely, using it to identify the first prehistoric person with mosaic Turner syndrome who lived about 2,500 years ago. So basically, this method... uh, involves computer modeling um, and basically it involves counting the number of copies of X and Y chromosomes in a given sample because if that person had uh, quote-unquote normal chromosomal separation, then you should expect to see a, cer- you know, a certain spread of X versus Y chromosomes and in, in a uh, assigned female, you'll just see XX, but you know, um, and then comparing that outcome to the predicted baseline. So what you would expect to see for someone who does not have Turner syndrome in, in those sex chromosomes. So basically it's sequencing the, the genetic information and testing it against a, uh, a set of parameters to see like, does it look like, you know, does it look like a quote unquote normal sex chromosome development or does it look different? So the team used the new method to analyze ancient DNA from a large data set of individuals. There was, there's this like, um, collecting DNA from prehistoric Britain, um, project that where they got this data from, um, identifying six individuals with aneuploides. So that's chromosomal abnormalities, aneuploides, aneuploides, um, across five sites in Somerset, which I cannot say unless I say Somerset, uh, Yorkshire, Oxford, and Lincoln shires. Uh, the individuals lived across a range of time periods from the Iron Age, that's 2,500 years ago, up to the post-medieval period, so about 250 years ago. 
And so they identified five people who had sex chromosomes which fell outside of the XX or XY categories. Um, and the, the interesting line, you know, at the end was all were buried according to their society's customs, although no possessions were found with them to shed more light on their lives. So does this tell us anything about these people's lives? No, but it tells us about their bodies. It tells us about their possible uh, health conditions, that kind of thing. I wish there were more information so that we could know more about their lives and whether this impacted them socially. But for all we know, nobody knew. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. That's how I reacted to the story too. It's like, Oh, all right. Nice. This next well, one. Thank you for is, sharing that. Oh yeah, sure. I, yeah. I look forward to learning more about it. I, I, you know, I didn't read all too deeply into, into it, but I had to learn about Turner syndrome real quick. So hopefully yeah. I explained it in a way that was, sort of cohesive um yeah so next one it's dogs 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 and there's pictures gonna... don't scroll down this... yet though okay um you're not gonna tell me about a dog that died are you i mean by default these are medieval dogs so doesn't they're fine um dogs in the middle ages what medieval writing tells us about our ancestors pets so like obviously okay. i'm going to talk about dogs at the slightest whiff of an opportunity but i will say up front that the conclusions of this were yeah it's about the same some people love dogs <laughs> some people didn't care you know oh, <laughs> but gosh uh, uh, <laughs> so basically this is an account of dogs with jobs um yes. to some extent so this is basically a medieval literature review where they went, they went through and found all the places where people wrote about dogs and, and looked at how they wrote about them and how they described them. Like, were they work animals? Were they oh, just so it's like a review pests? of medieval literature, not a medieval oh, literature not a, review. They didn't go on like Ye J store. You don't like. Know. <laughs> yes, true. you are correct. Okay. okay. <laughs> so in his book, De Cannabis... Would you like cannabis? Would you like to to tell me what that means? Use your context clues. Um, concerning dogs. Con I I have seen some very concerning dogs. Um, but yes, day cannabis. The 16th century English physician and scholar John Caius described a hierarchy of dogs, which he classified first and foremost according to their function in human society. Top, top dog. Close I mean. Just because she has seniority, I'll allow it. Yes. Over fiddle. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, well, so, yeah. So let's talk about dogs with jobs. Um, the, the thing that is interesting that the article kind of doesn't, like, the article doesn't set it up as, like, here's the interesting point. But what interested me was that um, the place of dogs in society seemed to change depending on what the aristocrats wanted which shouldn't be surprising. Um, so when hunting became an aristocratic well, pastime, I guess the place of dogs in society as described by the people commissioning mm. writing. Mm -hmm. Well, okay. So yes. Mm? Yeah. So I think we can say in general that dogs can be companion, can be working dog, can be like, uh, all of those things one does not, they're not mutually exclusive, right? These things, but what really affects portrayal of dogs and writing about dogs and depictions of right. dogs is who's, who's commissioning the work and, and what the role of dogs was at the time that whoever, you know, those people were in power. So hunting um, became an aristocratic pastime rather than a oh, necessity. Um, so, you have your hunting dogs and the breeding of hunting dogs. You know, it's like people are obsessed with their, with their hunting dogs. Um, oh yeah. Lap dogs. Still are. Well, yeah. All of this. Well, I mean is... like still are for like hunting, like mm -hmm. for like rich person hunting. Oh, none of not... this has changed. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> lap dogs also became a status symbol. Dogs in general became a status symbol. So like dogs in the Bible, there's only a few mentions of dogs and they're, they are mentioned as like, pests or disgusting creatures 
like as a dog returns to his own vomit is the i just thought i just thought like oh like argus and then i was like mm, that's, not that's a different bible <laughs> mm, the bible by homer <laughs> homer's bible yeah oh. so um in the bible dogs are not popular but by the medieval period um symbolically dogs had become much more associated with loyalty or devotion and especially as it concerns marriage so like you'll often see husband and wife portraits and then there's a dog like whether or not the couple had a dog the dog itself symbolizes like this is a loyal devoted marriage like a fido or yeah Fidelis. i, I yeah, am faithful yeah yeah, yeah. um yeah. So it's not just millennials dressing their dogs up. Medieval people Why? did too. I want you to scroll down to the two okay. images I've provided. These are not dogs. Yes, that, that is a the... dog. I know it looks like a cat. It looks like a lion. Well, one looks like one looks like a little lamb. And then uh -huh. the, the other one looks like a uh, mushushu, like the little, the little like dragon, yeah. little, little like long legged dragon guys on like in Mesopotamian art. Yeah. That is an so, ugly dog. Look, that's a chupacabra. The I know they look like someone described a dog to the uh, to the artist. This person has never seen. A dog. <laughs> but the point, <laughs> the thing I want you to look at, apart I'm now from a medieval the fact dog that this, truther. that this dog, like not all medieval depictions of dogs, are totally off. Like there's my tattoo. That's that's Celtic style. Although, anyway. Um, look at his little coat. I want I you to look at his little coat. And then the other one, he doesn't have a coat, but he does have a very fancy collar that a noble woman Got is nice holding on to and going, no. It's like, stop. And he's just like, let me at him. He never listens to me. Let me at him. Stop it. He's That's usually enough. so gentle. He's so sweet. <laughs> so yeah, those images are from the Devonshire Hunting Tapestry, which is housed at the Victorian yeah. Albert Museum. Oh, God. We don't have to go into that. I just, so basically <laughs> just, everything in the just, article. <laughs> the one museum that I've ever gone in and like 20 minutes in, I'm just like, nah, I'm not feeling this. <laughs> like in a, like I'm, I'm a, bored way. I'm a so go. like people. Yeah. yeah I was great. just like. <laughs> well, if you're but into ta tapestries, uh, that's where you can go <laughs> to see that. Yeah. I just, um, obviously I was going to talk about a dog thing, but I just, um, it's interesting that how much time has passed and yet how little has changed in that in this instance. Um, hey, you want to talk about the Ishtar gate? It's got dogs on it, according to whoever painted that dog. <laughs> no, those are dogs. We, we're switching news stories now. I play, I know, but I like, no, I see that, but it, like, what a great yeah. unexpected segue. It's unexpected to me too. <laughs> Archaeomagnetism dates construction of Babylon's Ishtar gate. So, hey, what's archaeomagnetism? I hear you asking. Um, it is an absolute dating technique. That means it gives you a year or a year range that relies on the fact that the earth's magnetic field, AKA where the North pole is changes in direction and intensity through time. And certain archeological features preserve evidence of the poles location at specific times. So for example, a hearth made from clay. So clay typically contains iron minerals that when they are fired, so when they're subjected to intense heat, become remagnetized parallel with the Earth's poles at that time. Like at that moment in time, they get fixed in their direction. So um, if you sample and measure very carefully and correctly, you can figure out how the alignment of the particles match up to a known past location of North Pole. So you can get a rough sense, like with I say rough sense, but you can actually get a pretty, pretty close sense of, of when in time something happens. If you have the material that can be dated using archaeomagnetism. And there's a little Mishushu. Right. Yeah. From the Ishtar gate. From the Ishtar gate with his See? little. Oh, he needs a if toenail trim. Up. Oh, I know. I hear him clicking across the linoleum. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah. See, I told you it's that dog. It's that dog. So where's the Ishtar Gate and what is it? Uh, the Ishtar Gate is in the uh, Berlin Museum, the Pergamon yeah, where, Museum. Where was it meant to be? <laughs> oh, well, um, it was meant to be at the Ishtar Gate uh -huh. of Babylon, uh -huh. a, specific, a specific gate of the city of Babylon named for the goddess Ishtar. Mm -hmm. And it was a primary... Uh, 
entry point for the procession of uh, Nabu Marduk for the Akitu festival, the New Year's festival that like a a version of which is still celebrated by Assyrian communities today. Oh, I that's believe. what it is. Yes, 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 yes. yes. Yeah. Yes. So like Assyrian New Year lines right. up with the That's Akitu right. festival of the Neo-Babylonian period. Okay. Well. That's all. That's all I got. But it's in Berlin now and you can't see it because it's currently being remodeled. So sorry, everyone. You can't see it. Yep. For like four years. Mm, well, uh, it's a beautiful Do you want shade to anything of... Else? Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna explain some other things. Oh, you have an answer because okay. I do have, I do have an answer to the question I asked you. But I wanted to give you a chance to just rattle off some things off the dome. So, great. Uh, there has been some controversy about when it was built, as it relates to certain other sort of big events in, oh yeah, in the area big, of Babylon. A specific one, a real specific yeah. one. So, yeah. The iconic okay. glazed brick edifice, beautiful shade of blue. Well, sort of multiple shades of blue. It's, a, it's, it's like fiance, yeah? Yeah. Uh, which King Nebuchadnezzar II ordered to be built and decorated with wild bulls and mashushu dragons. It's a dog. While ruling the Babylonian Empire from 605 to 562 BCE, was constructed in three phases and served as the entrance to the ancient city of Babylon, which was located in southern Mesopotamia. Okay, so it was thought to have been built to commem- commemorate the conquest of Jerusalem. Um, but that timing had been debated until now. So I will say uh, N equals very small because archaeologists collected tiny samples from five of the fired mud bricks from the Ishtar Gate. But I think they made sure to sample across the different phases of construction. Still, five samples is small. Uh, spread across the three phases, and they measured the geomagnetic fields of each one. So this new analysis, because it wasn't clear if, like, Nebuchadnezzar II ordered it to be built, but then it wasn't clear if he was still alive when it was finished, if there were any, like, gaps in the in when it was being built, you know. The whole process wasn't, the, the resolution of of our picture of the whole process wasn't very clear. But The new analysis determined that there were no significant chronological gaps between each construction phase and that the gate complex was constructed sometime after the Babylonian conquest of Jerusalem that took place in 586 BCE. So during that uh, event, the Babylonians destroyed Solomon's temple, also known as the first temple, uh, burned down the city and exiled the Jews to southern Mesopotamia. So the researchers concluded that because all of the magnetic field measurements in the five bricks were similar, The reconstructions were executed around the same time, 583 BCE, according to the study. And so that's during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar II, uh, indicating that the king was alive at the gate's completion. So, like, there was all this debate. But it doesn't speak to, like, the motivation. Nope. It basically confirms half of the story. It's like Nebuchadnezzar (laughs) ordered this to be built, and it was built during his reign. Right. And... I guess I'm sure yeah. people who know more about this than I do would be able to explain why that indicates that it's because of like, it's to commemorate the, the sacking of Jerusalem, but I don't know, but at least we know that it happened after, like it's after Jerusalem, like the temple was destroyed. Well, but I no, I thought the question was like, not if it happened after the temple was destroyed, but did it happen while Nebuchadnezzar was even alive. Yeah, and I mean and the, which is the like answer the bigger, seems to be yes. Cuz it cuz it just would have yeah, happened after the sack of Jerusalem. Yep. Um <laughs> so huh. Yeah, I just uh I wanted to more highlight the the method than the Yeah. than the story, but Oh uh, yeah, well, you know, but that's what <laughs> Our last one's about poop. Great. But not not exactly. Uh, so DNA from preserved feces reveals uh, ancient Japanese gut environment. Um, Gosh. <laughs> yeah. And so what I want to say up top is really the the I think the research question seems to have been like where a lot of the gut flora, bacteria, microbes, 
were the things that you find in our guts now, were those things present in these ancient populations? Um, like how, how much overlap is there? Like how much of these are sort of new, newish uh, inhabitants of our gut biome? And to what extent might people have been suffering from the same ailments? So in this study, researchers analyzed genetic traces left behind in four coprolites. Again, small sample size. Uh, collected at Japan's Torehama Shell Mound archaeological site to assess what details of the ancient people's lives could be ascertained from these samples. Listeners in Amber, perhaps your next question is what mine was. Torehama what? Great news. Here we go. The Torehama Shell Mound is a shell midden and remains of an early Jomon period settlement located in the Hokuriku region of Japan, which is sort of North northern coastline of the middle of the main island of Japan. So it's a waterlogged midden site that was occupied mainly from the incipient Jomon period to the early Jomon period. So that's from 12,000 to 5,000 years ago or 10,000 to 3,000 BCE. So these are hunter-gatherers. Mm-hmm. And so the, the fecal samples themselves were kind of on the later end of that, five, between 5,500 and 7,000 years old, dating back to the island chain's early Joman period. So that's pretty old for DNA, and it was kind of fragmented, but researchers were still able to get a sense of what microbes might have been around in these populations. So if you click on the link, Amber, that's there, and get a look at the chart that is oh, I'm just... at the top of the page... Tree scale. What? Can you please explain what this horrible is? This horrible <laughs> diagram is. Like, yeah. What is this? What's this do? It is a visual. <laughs> it's a visual readout of the um, genetic information and and the interrelatedness of are the those branching gut bacteria. Yeah. So they're they're is stuff branching. They're phylogenetic trees. So it's like saying saying like this is related to this is related to this. It's not necessarily important for for our purposes. Um, if but I don't. just like don't understand what it's trying to do. Like it's some it's so beyond. It looks like an iris, like the, the iris of someone's eye. It does. Like for listeners. So the amount like that the spikes. Is... So there are spikes uh, coming out yeah. of the the radial parts. Uh, the amount of spikes, like the the uh, amount that the spikes extend upwards or outwards rather, is okay. how abundant so like they were. So like the radius. Yeah. Like the the length of a given spike is mm-hmm. that like how much of something mm-hmm. is the the percentage in the overall sample yeah and then, so there are some bacteria that are really really abundant and there are some that are just like well they were there but not a lot and then what what these colors that that there's like a whole the colors like correspond half of, fully to, half of it is like this like wet yeah. camel color yeah so that's and fibrobacteria then, and from firmicutes or whatever that is so like it it gives it if you look at the color-coded legend on the side like those yeah. are the the bacteria and families there are just that many types of it mm-hmm. those are those are families so, of microbes they're not specific so is this showing ones. me both like diversity and density of a yes. given thing of like exactly. what's in the poop yeah and then these little trees are just why do they spiral out <laughs> i don't know why i don't like, know why they chose to do that i just i don't i think that might just be how the data like whatever program they used i think that just i'm might having be how trouble seeing how out. this is helpful like well, i think that's the thing that's making me angry is that i don't understand exactly. it to such a degree no, that I, I don't know what it's trying to tell me i wanted you to look at it for two reasons one to to kind of see how many um families of microbes we were talking about which is it's a lot but yeah also to <laughs> but also to talk about that that image because that is one of the things about the the things that get like rub me the wrong way about how articles could be so much more accessible is if you didn't By not put having things, this yeah if you didn't put things in a visual format that you have to have like three years of grad school to understand um Oh, so it was that it was that year the because I quit in my second like if I stuck <laughs> around for it. another one I yeah okay. abundance Mm -hmm. is around the whole thing. So what does that mean? If the spikes go past that, they are greater than 0.2% abundance within the entire sample. That's like, uh, is that main? It means it's more than the other stuff. You know, it, but but like, I don't, I'm not mad at you, Anna. I just, are you just disappointed? I, I don't know. 
I think I'm having a profoundly American response. That I'm seeing something I don't understand and it makes me angry. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, it's the same thing as not same, but it's, it's I'm similar to when, when um, researchers have looked at like uh, samples from Roman latrines and stuff and been like, everybody had whipworm. Ugh. Well, that, that I can deal with. Yeah. No, but I, what I'm saying is I wish it was presented in a way that, uh, yeah. And, you know, um, the great they news. They could release a great, this could have been a great article entitled, What's All This Crap? <laughs> um, the The great news is that you can, the article itself is not behind a paywall. So I can link the, that. I thought the, show the great notes. news was going to be that the contact information for the, the authors is there, which is what I saw next. And I'd be like, mm-hmm. how dare you? <laughs> Um, but they also cool. like, they also tested for like genetic remnants of the foods that they were eating. Like this was the, this was the interesting yeah. part, right? So there, <laughs> there was salmon, red beans. Great. Oh yeah. Mm, delicious. Um, Going great so far. Yeah. So they, basically they, they end the article saying, here are the applications for this method. So they haven't really, so like Based on our alignment results, we could estimate the existence of microbes and host viral coexistence in the Joman gut environment comparable to that in present day humans. So like human gut flora has not changed substantially in that area, I suppose, uh, in that part of the world since, you know, 5,000 years ago. So we learned something. Anyway, I'll put the, I'll put the link to the, uh, the full article. And if you're somebody notes. who understands this graph, I understand and, and like, like 0.2% of it. <laughs> I have 0.2% understanding if it abundance. Sense, if, you make, if you've ever, if you are listening to this and you're like, this sounds familiar and it looks like something that you have made. Can you tell me why you did that? Yeah. Thank you. The dirt podcast at gmail.com. Cause I sure can't explain it. And like, could you have a subject line be like, it's okay, Amber. I could really use an email like that. Yeah, actually, I, right I want to say shout out to <laughs> folks who have emailed us recently. Um, I'm not going to. You're so th- nice. You're so, you're all so nice. And also thank you to the person who sent in um, the Homo Habilis related company name. It was like Homo Habilis Construction Company. I'm remembering it poorly because I don't have it pulled up, but they're like, I thought you'd get a kick out of this. And I, indeed, I did exceptional like workmanship since a million years ago or whatever. Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, yeah, it was good. It was good. Yeah, thank See, you that, for... They should include that in like the like guides to like alt-act jobs, <laughs> post-act jobs. <laughs> yeah. You could have a business that makes anthropologists who see it go... <laughs> yeah. Which, you know... Hey, we need it. Uh, no, I Thank just, you for like, sharing these with me. Sure. I Even though uh, I got really mad about... <laughs> I'm sorry that I've gotten, like, angry, confused. <laughs> I mean, really, like, this is, this is you know, you know, art imitates life over here. Um, I'm, like, slightly sweaty after that. Like, I just, like, just, like, what an arresting graph. Well, you never have to look at it ever again. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I, I hope, I hope this was interesting for people. I hope I full disclosure. I am currently in the middle of a really particularly gnarly long COVID flare up, which makes my brain not work so good. And I really hope that the way I explained things for most of this was. No, I, I useful. Okay, great. And I and I hope that if nothing else, listeners, I have normalized not knowing things. <laughs> yeah. And and try and like asking, expressing. Well, I, I mean I expressed like positively that I you don't understand. Help me understand. And then of, I a whole range of response emotions. Yeah. <laughs> we really the whole like I'm that going whole... to the airport to go punch that PI in yeah. the face for making this graph. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say it was like the the uh, feedback kiosks at the airport that are like, how was your experience? Frowny face. Are the ones in the face. bathroom where yeah. you can be like, oh, fine, I guess. I, like, I, don't I just had to pee and then I peed. Uh, I feel better now. 
Smiley face. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, listeners, we hope that this episode has left you with a smiley face or at least the one that's just kind of like, huh. Yeah. Punch the one in the middle. It's fine. Yeah. It's fine. Yeah. Uh, And, and thank you so much for listening and Hey, consider signing up for, uh, for that, uh, premium. There's so much back there. There's There's so so much much back there. And also it helps us an awful lot. It sure does. Yeah, it helps us keep the it show sure going. It sure does. Because uh, yep. it costs money to do that. And even though we don't it make sure money. sure does. Uh, <laughs> yep. Anyway, thank you. We love you. Bye. Goodbye. Goodbye.